this morning we were opening presents and my son said, I can't believe it's Christmas Day already. It's like this anticipation has been building and building and building. In fact, for several weeks I've been asking people, hey, what are you doing for Christmas? You guys ask people that question? What are you doing for Christmas? People have all sorts of rituals and food to eat and gifts to open, kind of unique twists on the whole gift exchange thing, family gatherings. There's all sorts of things to do for Christmas. In fact, a couple nights ago, we were out to dinner and uh, my wife and I were running down our list of every piece of our schedule, which is jam-packed for like 72 hours. Like we're like from one place to another. I don't know if you feel that with me, but we're going down the list and I asked my son, what are you looking forward to the most for this weekend? And he goes, all of it. (laughs) I was like, great. And I said, well, who are you looking forward to spending the most time with? And he's my cousins. I'm like, yeah, that's great. You love that for the holidays. What are you doing for Christmas? It's such a, a good question. But I wonder if maybe true joy at Christmas time doesn't come necessarily by what we do for Christmas, but what we might allow Christmas to do in us. Ask yourself that question today. What am I willing to allow Christmas, the story of Jesus' birth, the reality of the King of Heaven come to be with us, what will I let that do in me? We've read prophecies this morning from anywhere from 500 to 750 years before Jesus' birth. Does that just blow your mind? This is crazy. The, the story the Bible tells over this humongous period of time from all sorts of pieces of the world's geography and authors who didn't know anything about each other, who just heard from God and said what God said. And God was weaving this story together over a long period of time. We read Mary's song after Mary was visited by the angel and uh, and made aware of what God was doing. She went and saw her family, Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John, who became John the Baptist in this miraculous birth of the man who would pave the way for Jesus to come, to prepare the way for the Lord. And Mary's song, her Magnificat, this this beautiful hymn of praise to God. And then even Zechariah, John's father, who would talk about who John would be leading the way to who Jesus would be. All of these pieces coming together to tell the story of Jesus' birth. And we pick up our story in Luke chapter 2. We read most of Luke 1 in those two prophecies and songs. But in Luke chapter 2, the Roman emperor. Now we're talking about Jesus as a Jew, right? He, he grew up as a Jew. And so what does Rome have to do with this? Well, right now at this period in time, all of Israel is governed by the Roman government. And so Caesar Augustus calls for a census. He wants to make sure he knows everybody everywhere in all of his kingdom. And so it's ironic that the real king was born into this kingdom that people think is one of the greatest on earth, right? But Caesar calls for the census, which leads Mary and Joseph to have to travel from their home all the way to Bethlehem, which is this tiny little town barely on the map where Joseph was originally from. Now, they had to register with the Roman government, and this is where we are. Uh, In some ways, this would have been like a family reunion. Coming back to Bethlehem, maybe some extended family, maybe some of you are seeing extended family this weekend or into next week. So in some ways, this was kind of like that. But so many people 
whose families were originally from Bethlehem and had gotten out of that little town as fast as possible, are coming back also in the same way Mary and Joseph were to register. And so everybody at once was a little more than the town could handle. Uh, Jill and I lived for several years in uh, South Dakota in a, a little place called Spearfish. It's about 15 miles from Sturgis. And if you've ever rode, ridden a, a Harley-David motorcycle, you know what Sturgis is. It's where they have this annual motorcycle rally. And this little town of Sturgis is about 5,000 people. It's kind of tucked in the hills of, uh, of the Black Hills of South Dakota. But for a couple weeks a year, it turns into like 500,000 people on motorcycles. It's loud, right? And even like the 75th anniversary of that rally was one year we lived there, there were up to a million people in that little town and all around it. People rent out green grass in someone's front yard to pitch a tent. That's how crowded it was. Like if I could just get carve out a little space about this size of where I'm standing, I'll rent that for a lot of money just to put a tent for a couple weeks and park my motorcycle outside. This is crazy, right? Well, Bethlehem didn't quite reach that magnitude, but the effect was similar because there was no place for them to stay. Mary and Joseph probably started by looking for a family home, extended family. Can we stay? Is there a place? And in that culture, hospitality was such a high priority. It would have been difficult for those families to say no, but there was no space. And so they go from maybe family houses to looking for a motel. Is there something like a motel where we can stay? Well, no, all those are booked too. Okay, let's try to find something like a hostel. A hostel where we could just maybe get a bed, maybe a roof over our head. No, all that is booked up too. So one person finally says, I do have a place. It's a little dirty. It's a little humble, a little downtrodden, but it's shelter. It was a barn. We call it a stable. It could have been even more like a cave where animals would come and feed and sleep. And they said, okay. And that is where Jesus, the Son of God, was born as a man. You know, that is an incredible moment. But it was a quiet moment. About five miles away, though, things didn't go so quietly. Five miles outside of Bethlehem, between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, the capital city, there was a little ruckus. There were some shepherds. Shepherds who were the lowest on the totem pole of society. These guys are working the night shift. They're blue collar. They're just out there on the hillside watching over their sheep. When all of a sudden, expecting nothing to happen out of the ordinary that night, God lit up the sky and an angel came forward and explained this incredible story about the Messiah, the Savior, being born. This awesome experience. Heaven broke open into time and space and a huge heavenly choir exclaimed the glory of God. Unbelievable sight. And without hesitation, the shepherds expedited their journey. We got to go, we got to go examine these claims. What is it with this child? Is it true what these angels are saying? This mind-blowing experience and when they found Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus and everything was that has had been told, they knew that humans were experiencing God in the flesh. 
What a story. Well, the question we don't want to ask is, what was the first Christmas doing in these people? As this story unfolds, now we know what they were doing for Christmas, the first Christmas, but what was the first Christmas doing in them? Well, there's some words in the story in Luke chapter 2 that I think give us a window into what's really going on inside of these people that we can take note of and see what God might want to do this Christmas in us. So Luke chapter 2, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it. Or if you've got a phone, you can even open it up to Luke chapter 2, and we'll have some words on the screen for you as well. But in Luke chapter 2, verse 15, we pick up the end of the shepherd's experience, and it says, When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And I love that little phrase at the end, to us. Now remember who these guys were. They were nobodies. Like really that sentence should have ended grammatically with the, which the Lord has made known. Right? Just because God just made it known to everybody. This is what, No, no, no. He made it known, they said, to us. And that's kind of how I picture them saying it. Let's go see what the Lord has made known to us. Like, why us? Like, we're the guys who really, like, we're out here, you know, watching over these sheep who would become animal sacrifices at the temple. For Judaism to work, they had to do their job. But the irony is that their job prevented them from even being part of that religious exercise. These guys were outcasts socially, the lowest on the totem pole. Why wouldn't God do this, explain this to someone else? Why us? Let's go see. And then in verse 16, he says that it says they hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Imagine these guys, these shepherds in the middle of the night after heaven breaks open and they travel five miles, probably sprinting into Bethlehem and going through the city streets, the back alleys, asking people who might be hanging around outside of houses or, or, or stores or in the street, maybe other people finding a place to stay, and they're saying, hey, have you heard a baby? Hey, did you see any pregnant women coming through here? Hey, we're looking for something. And probably in the middle of the night, all these other people are raising an eyebrow going, I don't know what's going on with these guys. Something's a little off here. But then they would say something like, an angel told us the Messiah was being born in Bethlehem tonight in a manger. And then the wheels would start turning in people's heads and they would go, oh yeah, I remember back at my little Sunday school class when we studied the prophet Micah, which we read a minute ago in chapter 5 verse 2, which says, oh Bethlehem, Epaphra, oh you tiny little town barely on the map, you will be where a Savior is born. And they're going, oh yeah, wait, we're in Bethlehem. Oh, and so an angel came and said, and so now it's more than just an eyebrow. Now it's people going, okay, something's happening here. And a little crowd starts to form behind these shepherds going down the city streets, the back alleys, until they finally come to where Mary and Joseph are. And Mary and Joseph, maybe a little shocked at all these people, meet these shepherds. And the shepherds meet them, and the shepherds meet Jesus, the baby 
of whom they had been told. And everything was just like they had been told. And so they recounted their story. They're in front of the crowd. They're in front of Mary and Joseph. And it says here in Luke 2 that everyone was amazed. Now we think of that word amazed as like something great just happened. And I can't believe it. This is awesome. Except there's a little more to this word than meets the eye. The word actually reminds me of a friend of mine I had when I was going to seminary who was an illusionist and a mentalist. Have you guys ever seen people like this? Uh, a, a mentalist or an illusionist where they do the illusion part is like you know, a sleight of hand kind of stuff. They do things that are like, oh, how do you do that? But then the mentalist part is where things get a little wacky for me because it's like they can read minds. Like, I know they can't. In fact, my friend who would do these shows, he always started his show by saying, okay, look, there's no, there's no such thing as magic. Anybody who watches my show, everybody can learn exactly what I'm doing. It just takes a lot of time and effort, and then you can do it the same way I'm doing it. And I'm going, okay, so it's not that impressive. But then at the end of the show, he's done some things that just totally blew my mind. And I'm going, there's something going on here with you. And I don't know what it is because that's not possible what you just did. That thing you predicted or that thing you guessed or however that thing, that's not possible. And so I'm amazed at this, but I'm also a little bit like, I don't know about you, man. So I thought I would just help you because this word amazed is also this word astonished. And I want to just put it in emoji definition. Can I do that for you? So this is my emoji definition of the word amazed. It's the wide open eyes where you go, and you go, huh, I don't know about that. Like, there's a little critical inquisitiveness here. Like, I'm going, I'm not so sure. And so the shepherds recount their story to Mary and Joseph, to all the crowds who maybe had gathered, following them, hearing about this angel and, and this, this heavenly choir and how God lit up the sky and said the Messiah will be born. And all these people are going, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> and there's a little question. I need to investigate this a little further. So what does that mean for you? If that's what the first Christmas was doing in them, the first answer to what Christmas could do in you today is you might be coming to the real Christmas story for the first time. Or maybe you're coming to the real Christmas story for the first time in a long time. And you're hearing things like prophecies and angels and virgin birth and all these things that are not normal. And you're going, really? Are we believing in this? Is this real? And I just want to encourage you today that that's an okay question because this is the most unique event in the history of mankind. Before this happened, it had never happened before, and it's never happened since. See, we don't even have a category in our minds to help us comprehend what actually happened on the first Christmas. And so it ought to be like this for us. There ought to be some astonishment, some going, huh, that's unique. But maybe this Christmas, what you need to do is for the first time, or maybe the first time in a long time, take a serious look at the validity of Jesus and who Jesus is, which leads us then to the next person who we want to look at, the person closest to Jesus' birth, Mary. This is what it says about Mary in verse 19. It says, but Mary 
Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. Treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. Now, as opposed to the crowd, Mary is not astonished. Mary doesn't have questions about the authenticity about what was happening. Mary's absolutely sure about what happened because the shepherd's story affirmed what she had already been experiencing. You can imagine as she treasures these things in her heart, you know, you go, oh, well, that sounds very sweet and cute. Right? Of course, a mother would treasure those experiences. And if you've ever been around a mother who's just had a baby, you know there are moments like that where you go, wow, this is just, you got to soak this in, right? But then there's also moments that are not that sweet and cute when you first have a baby either. But what's really happening here is while it sounds sweet and cute, the imagery behind this word treasuring is that Mary is taking things that she knows to be authentic and it's as if she's putting them away in a safety deposit box and locking them in a vault and going, I know this is true, this is real to me, this is authentic, and I'm going to make sure I keep it here hidden and safe so that one day I can access it again when I need it. Mary is building her faith. Mary is building her hope in what God is doing and saying. So as God showed up and proved himself, circumstances didn't really look like God was in it. You know, we tend to look at our circumstances, and if they're good circumstances, we go, wow, God must be blessing. But if our circumstances are difficult, we go, where is God? Well, look at Mary. She's a teenage mom without a husband. She's probably being outcast from her own family. All these crazy events. She's got to travel away from home to Bethlehem. She's got to stay in a cave or a barn. She's surrounded by animals, having a babe. I mean, this, none of these circumstances would be where we go, wow, God's really blessing you. <laughs> but God was at work, right? Even when circumstances didn't make sense to them, God was at work for his glory and they're good. Maybe this Christmas, what God needs to do inside of you is help you see your circumstances, which may not be favorable even, may not even be enjoyable, may be difficult. And for you to remember and to restore up in your safety deposit box the truth and authenticity of Jesus to go, no matter what I'm going through, I trust God is at work for his glory and my good. And it goes on to say that Mary tells us, tells us she was meditating, meditating on these things. So do you picture Mary there in the barn, in the stable, you know, fingers out, like <laughs> legs crossed? That's not what she's talking about. Mary's meditating on these things. Lord willing, tonight I'm going to be at my in-laws, and uh, after a good afternoon of opening presents, one of the last presents I'm going to open is a puzzle. Thanks to our brother-in-law, this is a Christmas tradition with Jill's family. We do a puzzle every year, and then we somehow hold that puzzle or get with that puzzle, and we take a picture of all of us with that puzzle, and then that picture becomes the puzzle for next year. 
And so after several years of this, you can imagine what's happening. It's like a puzzle and a puzzle and a puzzle and a puzzle and a puzzle, okay? And so it's pretty trippy because when you're working it, it can get confusing. You're like, wait, oh, I got a piece of, of, of Cecil's head here. Well, that was from two, no, that was that year when you were doing this. And it's like, you know, you're trying to figure out where all the pieces go. And so I want you to imagine doing a puzzle. You guys done puzzles before, right? Holding your piece and there's 999 other pieces on the table and you're hovering over that and you're just looking and you're looking at your piece and you're looking at the other pieces and you're maybe seeing some pieces come together in some different ways and you're going, okay, where does this piece fit? That is the definition of this word, meditate. What Mary's doing is she's starting to see things come together. She's starting to see things from a different perspective. She's seeing angels and she's seeing you know, incredible miracles happen. She's seeing prophecies fulfilled. She's seeing all sorts of things happen that she heard would happen. Pieces are coming together, and so in her mind, as she meditates, she's holding her piece of the puzzle, and she's looking at the puzzle that God is building, and she's saying, okay, God, I trust you to put me where I fit. That's what Mary's doing. Now, most of us treat life differently. Most people that you know and I know aren't holding our piece of the puzzle going, okay, God, I trust you to put me where I fit. Most of us are building our complete own puzzle. And we're looking for arranging things in our lives in order to make the best puzzle possible of our lives. We want to, okay, I want to get a good career, okay? So if I got a good career going, boom, that's a corner piece. That's a good foundation, right? Maybe I got a good relationship going, okay, boom, that's another corner piece. And now if I can get my investments going or if I can have enough money in the bank account, whatever it is, boom, maybe that's another corner piece. And then I'll start to fill in the gaps here. And then over time, if I can make circumstances favorable enough for myself, I can build the life I want. And then eventually you figure out there's some empty spaces there that don't really fit. So you go, okay, maybe I just squeeze a little God in there. Okay, I'm going to put a little God here, put a little God here, put a little God here. And then just fill in the gaps, okay? And that's how I'll build my life. Except the Bible tells a completely different story. Christmas tells a completely different story. Christmas tells us the story that we don't build our own lives, but that God is up to something so much bigger God is building his family for all of eternity. Everything about life is because God is at work. And what the image on the puzzle will end up being is not your face or my face or our church's name or anything like that. The image on the puzzle will be Jesus Christ. He's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. In fact, I want you to hear this first. We've been studying Colossians in our Sunday morning worship gatherings. And here's what Colossians chapter 1 says about this. It says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus made God visible to us. He is the firstborn over all creation. Everything was created by him, and in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and by him, all things hold together. Jesus is the puzzle. 
maybe this Christmas, what you need to do is to let God stir in you the joy of being part of something much, much bigger than yourself. What if our greatest joy comes in finding ourselves in God's bigger story? Maybe Christmas wants to stir that in you this year. Now, finally, and this is my favorite in verse 20 of Luke chapter 2, back to the shepherds. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. So after all the shock, after all the amazement, after all the wonder and the mystery of the night, the shepherds went back to work. They went back to work, presumably the very same night, back to their fields, back to their flocks, except they went back different. They went back different. The true joy of Christmas comes when we take the truth of Christmas beyond the holiday. That's maybe what God wants to stir in you this Christmas. When we take Christmas into our everyday rhythms, because Christmas is a story of God breaking into the ordinary. That's what I love about Luke chapter 2. It's just a bunch of guys on a hillside. It's just a, a couple who, who really didn't deserve to be part of God's story in this way. It's just a small town that's barely on the map. God broke into the ordinary to bring redemption to the entire world. And so that story can also happen in your life. God wants to break into your ordinary to show you redemption, to show you a bigger purpose, a bigger reason, a bigger reality. This is what Christmas could do. It's amazing that God chose to announce this universe-changing message to these shepherds as we've talked about. He could have chosen kings. He could have chosen prophets or priests. He could have even just chosen regular church-going people, but he didn't. He chose these guys, these blue-collar, these salt-of-the-earth, these night-shift guys, guys whose job wasn't even compatible with the religion they were in. These guys had no ulterior motive. Uh, these guys wouldn't hesitate walking into a dirty barn to greet a baby. That actually probably made more sense to them than it makes to us. It's the kind of men that bring hope to people who are regular like Mary and Joseph, the kind of people who bring hope to regular people like you and me. It's amazing to me that the God of the universe values regular people like us. And God wants to know people like us. He doesn't make us come to him, as religion tends to suggest. But instead, the God of the universe comes to us. I want to invite Haley and the worship team back up. We're going to end with one more song of celebration about how God came to bring joy to the world. Before we do, I want to just remind you of two names that Jesus had. We've talked about what Christmas stirs in you, but I just want to point you to the main thing, which is that Jesus is the king of everything and that God wants to know you in a relationship through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus had two names that were given to him. The first, Jesus, which we call him by on a regular basis. Do you know what the name means, Jesus? It means Savior. It means Savior. 
And if you've been around church much, you know you've heard Jesus is Savior, right? And you know that that's what God wants us to save us from our sins. Jesus became the sacrifice for our sins. That's why he was here. He lived a perfect life. He did not sin so that he could become a substitute for us. He took on our sin so that he could give us his righteousness. And that's what saves us for all eternity. We know that saving is the forgiveness of sins so that we can have a relationship with God from here through eternity. This is good, good news. But Jesus has another name. It's the name Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel, the Bible tells us, means God with us. So Jesus didn't simply come to save us. He came to live with us. And the Christmas story ought to stir in you a desire to have life with God. And that's available to you, even here and now. If you have questions about life with God or what it means to be a Christian, you can use the next card, which is right in front of you, or online at moberly.org slash next. Fill that out. We want to help you take that step. Because true joy this Christmas will come not by what you do for Christmas, but by what you allow Christmas to do in you. It's all about Jesus, who is God, born into a family of men so that he could die on a cross for sin, so that by faith we men could be born into the family of God. This is what Christmas is about. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for that incredible gift of salvation, but also the incredible gift of your presence that you put on flesh so that we could see you in the most understandable way, that, God, we could know you through your Son, and we could have eternal life because of his death and resurrection. May this Christmas stir in us a passion to have life with you, even in the ordinary, in our everyday rhythms, to see you at work for your glory and our good. We give you joy and honor and glory and praise because of Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.